Psalm 44 this evening, Psalm 44, as was read just a moment ago. Folks, we live in times of of crisis. In fact, I feel that our world is in perpetual crisis mode. Our country is in crisis in every way. Politically, it sounds like our former president might get arrested this next week. Economically, it sounds like our banks may fail. Morally, right and wrong is upside down. There's so many examples that we could give. Socially, there is angst and anger among people. And that angst and anger is at a breaking point, it seems. I don't need to rehearse all the headlines that we've seen and heard Things are not good. We might even say there is crisis. And and so it begs the question, what should we do? Maybe we should buy gold. Maybe we should buy guns. Maybe we should move north and west and live off the grid and, and become a prepper. You know, there's a little bit of prepper in all of us. Of course, a few years back, the COVID pandemic taught us that when we all hoarded toilet paper for ourselves, prepping. He said, Pastor, never mind our country's crisis. I'm facing my own personal crisis. You say, for me, it's a matter of my health, sickness or disease or some diagnosis. You say, Pastor, for me, it's financial hardship or maybe a loss of a job. You say, Pastor Matt, never mind the crisis in the macro sense, but in the micro sense in my own life, it's It's a broken relationship, a hurt, or a betrayal. And in some way, shape, or form, you are in crisis, even this evening. This past week, I had six individuals that reached out to me in their crisis. I'm sure that our other pastors as well, perhaps counseled or prayed with with others, for crisis is common to man as we live life in a fallen world. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And we often cite that phrase, but we forget the rest of the verse. It's John 16, verse 33. Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, that you may have, in me you may have peace. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And so what do we do in our time of crisis? Regarding your personal crisis, I would point you to Psalm 50, verse 15, where God says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. I would encourage you with 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Regarding our national crisis, I would offer Paul's instructions and To to Timothy, he says, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You say, okay, pastor, then how do I call on the Lord in my day of trouble. 
You say, Pastor, what are those supplications and those prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks for our country sound like? What do they look like? And this evening, I present to you Psalm 44 as a template for how we might pray in our time of crisis, whether nationally or personally. For Psalm 44 is a lament of God's people at such a time. Let me pray, and then we'll look at Psalm 44. God in heaven, we're so grateful that you are the God of the ages, or that you are the God of our fathers. We're so grateful that we can turn to you and look to you. Lord, I pray that you would illumine the scripture to us this evening as we read and study this ancient text, this psalm, this song of your people, Israel, and may we find relevant, practical application for our own season of crisis. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's begin in Psalm 44 by looking at the superscription that is the title or the heading that really precedes, if you will, verse number one as we know it. The superscription of Psalm 44 tells us that this psalm was delivered to the chief musician. That as Psalm 44 was authored for and delivered to Israel's music leader to be used by the people of God when they gathered together for corporate public worship of God to the chief musician. The superscription of Psalm 44 then also tells us that the psalm is a psalm of contemplation is what my New King James Version reads or the maskil is perhaps what you have there, that's the Hebrew. We understand that to be a literary or a musical term that indicates that the song's intent was for instruction to cause people to think. And so if we might combine these two ideas, this psalm was for the musical worship of God to the chief musician, and this psalm was for the instruction of God's people, a contemplation, a mass skill. The New Testament tells us to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for these two very same reasons. First, we make melody in our hearts to the Lord. You see the musical worship of God and then we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom that is the edification or the instruction of one another, Ephesians 5, 19 and Colossians 3, verse 16. The superscription here in Psalm 44 then tells us it is of the sons of Korah. That means that this psalm along with 11 other psalms in the Psalter come from a long line of those who descended from Korah. Okay, who is Korah? Korah is the one who led the rebellion against Moses and Aaron in Numbers 16. You'll remember that God judged Korah in his rebellion by opening up the earth and swallowing 250 people alive. However, it was seven generations later that one of the sons of Korah named Samuel became a prophet of God. And it was then the Korahites who served in the tabernacle as musicians for generations. In fact, I bet some of your favorite psalms were psalms written by the sons of Korah. For example, if you turn just a page back, maybe across the page, Psalm 42, you'll notice the very same superscription is, is before Psalm 42, verse number one being a familiar favorite 
As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. So there's so much insight that we can gain even from the superscription of Psalm 44. But what the superscription of Psalm 44 doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell us the origin or the occasion for this psalm. However, a simple reading of it as we did just a moment ago makes it clear that there was a time of crisis among God's people Israel. And of course, there's always a time of crisis, it seems, for God's people Israel. But maybe this psalm was written when the united kingdom of Israel divided into the north and the south. Perhaps this psalm was written when the Assyrians or the Babylonians invaded. Whatever the circumstance, this psalm was addressing a time of crisis. One of those times of crisis was in the days of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah began his rule and reign over the southern kingdom of Judah at age 25. You can read about it in 2 Kings 18. He reigned for 29 years. You can read all of the, the accounts of King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 16 to 20 and in 2 Chronicles 28 to 32. But what you need to know is that King Hezekiah of the southern kingdom of Judah was one of the, the few good kings of Judah. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Chronicles 31 verse 10 that Hezekiah did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. 2 Kings 18, verse 5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. King Hezekiah was a good king in Judah. Okay, who was the king before King Hezekiah? Well, it was King Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king who led Judah far from the Lord. One author has explained it this way. I've copied it for you there in your notes. In fact, I've copied everything there in your notes, you'll notice. But, but this is um, a summary that's helpful. After um, Ahaz's wicked reign, this is the father of Hezekiah, there was much work to do, and Hezekiah boldly cleaned house. Pagan altars, idols, and temples were destroyed. The bronze serpent that Moses had made in the desert was also destroyed because the people had made it an idol. 2 Kings 18 verse 4. The temple in Jerusalem, whose doors had been nailed shut by Hezekiah's own father, this is Ahaz, it was cleaned out and reopened. The Levitical priesthood was reinstated. The Passover was reinstituted as a national holiday. Under Hezekiah's reforms, revival came to Judah. How great is that? You see, the southern kingdom of Judah was on the right track. They were doing well. Today, we might say that the conservatives were in power. We might say they are draining the swamp. Law and order is being restored, and constitutional judges are being appointed. The border is secure and spending is under control. You catch my references, right? However, in spite of all the good news, as part of Hezekiah's reign in Judah, there was crisis for King Hezekiah and for Judah. The enemies of God were rising up against King Hezekiah. They were rising up against the southern kingdom of Judah. And Bible scholars believe that Psalm 44 may have been written at that time, although we don't read of it in the superscription. But follow with me, beginning in verse number one, as has already been read, but I think it it bears reading again. We have heard with our ears, O God, Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. 
This is Israel's history. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted, that is Israel you planted, you afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arms save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance because you favored them, that is Israel. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. Number one in your notes, God's providence in the past. God's providence in the past, verses number one through eight. Now, this was a theme of our study this morning. We find it again this evening in Psalm 44, verses one through eight. The story of Israel's history is a story of God's providence. If you want to read, read a short version of Israel's history, read of it in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 rehearses how that God led and fed Israel in amazing ways. God protected and provided for Israel in amazing ways. And since that time, the story has always been the same. Israel's history is a testimony to the providence of God. It was in 1899 that Samuel Clemens, perhaps you know him better by the name Mark Twain, he penned an essay entitled Concerning the Jews after a trip he took to the Holy Land. And Mark Twain, he wrote this, I've copied it for you there in your notes, the Egyptian, the Babylonian, the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other peoples have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces passed, but he remains. What is the secret to his immortality? Well, of course, we know the answer. The secret of Israel's immortality, the secret of the Hebrew people's invincibility, the survival of the Jews is none other than God's good hand upon them, his providence in caring for them. Now, without confusing or conflating our understanding of God's chosen people, Israel, and our own country, the United States of America is not the people of God as Israel is. I'd like to, however, remind us that God's providence does extend beyond the nation of Israel to any people that fear him. And in God's common grace and providence, we can identify this in our own country's history. So a little bit of history for us this this evening. Think with, with me of those who sailed on the Mayflower. The colonists who first traveled to the new world for religious liberty. After 65 days at sea, they made landfall at Cape Cod, and there they dropped anchor, and 41 men signed their names to a document. We know it as the Mayflower Compact. I've copied a portion of that for you. It reads like this, in the name of God, amen. 
We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James by the grace of God, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, due by these presents solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic. There was a definite sense that their journey was a matter of God's providence at that time. Of course, we know that they barely survived that first year, that harsh winter and that first year. But after surviving that first year, they celebrated God's protection and God's providence with what we know of as the first Thanksgiving celebration. And it was William Bradford that wrote of these difficult times. I've copied it for you there. But these things did not dismay them. That is all of the hardship, though they did sometimes trouble them. For their desires were set on the ways of God and to enjoy his ordinance. But they rested on his providence and knew whom they had believed. I'm not suggesting that the early settlers of our country or the colonists are in any way, shape, or form the people of God as Israel is. But those people recognize the providence of God in their own circumstance. If you scan verses 1 through 8 with your eye, Psalm 44, verses 1 through 8, you will notice how often there is a pronoun that refers to God, you and your. And here, the psalmists recognize God's providence. It's your hand. It's your work. It's, it's what God had done in their history. I counted more than a dozen times when the psalm refers to what God did here in these early verses. At the end of verse number eight, there is a selah, a salah. It, it, it's simply a notation that means stop and think about that. Look back over the course of your life as individual people or as a country and, and recognize the sweet providence of God in bringing us to this point. How has God led you to this place? How has God provided for you over the years at each turn? How has God preserved you along the way? There is a chain of events in your life that is beyond coincidental. It is providential. You say, Pastor Matt, wasn't this the point of the morning message? It was. And would you know it, here we are again, the very same theme. So a bit more history, those of you that enjoy the the recounting of history. This last week I was reading of one of the darkest days in our American history. Of course, that was the attack on Pearl Harbor, December 7th of 1941. A few weeks later, a few weeks after that bombing, Christmas Day, 1941, Admiral Nimitz was touring the destruction wrought on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. Big sunken battleships and navy vessels cluttered the waters everywhere you looked. Some of you who've been to that site have have seen some of that. What do you think after seeing all of this destruction, Admiral Nimitz was asked. His reply shocked everyone within the sound of his voice. Admiral Nimitz said, the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes an attack force could ever make. Or else... God was taking care of America. Listen to this. Nimitz explained 
Mistake number one, the Japanese attacked on Sunday morning. Nine out of every 10 crewmen of those ships were ashore on leave. If those same ships had been lured out to sea and been sunk, we would have lost 38,000 men instead of 3,800 men. Mistake number two, when the Japanese saw all those battleships lined in a row, they got so carried away sinking those battleships that they never once bombed our dry docks opposite those ships. If they had destroyed our dry docks, we would have had to tow every one of those ships to America to be repaired. But as it is now, the ships are in shallow water and can be raised. One tug can pull them over to the dry docks and we can have them repaired and at sea by the time we could have towed them to America. And I have already cruised ashore anxious to man those ships. Mistake number three. Every drop of fuel in the Pacific theater of war is in top of the ground storage tanks five miles away over the hill. One attack plane could have um, destroyed those tanks and our fuel supply. That's why I say the Japanese made three of the biggest mistakes an attack force could make or God was taking care of America. I don't want to overstate or spiritualize a a single historic event. But I think just as the psalmist is looking back over Israel's history, we can look back over our own nation's history. We can look back over our own individual lives and recognize the times in which God provided for us, the Lord protected us, the Lord guided us. These things are not coincidence, they are providence. And in your time of crisis, when it seems like the sky is falling and everything in your life is going wrong, the anecdote for that is to look back and review the works of God. God has led, God has guided, preserved, protected, and sustained us over all of these years. Number one, God's providence in the past. Number two, man's problems in the present. Because we don't live in the past. We live in the here and now, the present. And man's problems in the present for Israel on this occasion were letter A, military disaster. Military disaster. Look at verse nine. But you have cast us off and put us to shame and you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. Okay. King Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, refused to listen to the counsel of the prophet Isaiah when the northern kingdom of Israel joined forces with Syria to war against the southern kingdom of Judah. So don't get confused here at this point. King Ahaz of Judah, the father of Hezekiah of Judah, the southern kingdom, When the northern kingdom joined forces with Syria to war against the southern kingdom, the prophet Isaiah told King Ahaz to be patient, to wait on the Lord. But Ahaz reached out to Sennacherib and the Assyrians, okay, so the northern kingdom and the Syrians. Ahaz reaches out to Sennacherib and the Assyrians and asks them for help. Anytime that you ask the enemies of God for help, you're in deep, deep trouble. It will not end well. 
after Sennacherib and the Assyrians from the north defeated the Syrians and the northern kingdom. They kept coming south. They turned on the southern kingdom of Judah and one by one, Sennacherib and the Assyrians devastated the cities of Judah as they marched toward Jerusalem. And this here could be the lament of God's people that that this is maybe God's fault. Look at verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, you have given us up like sheep intended for food, have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and you're not enriched by selling them. This is a heavy charge that the psalmist is making against God in his crisis here. Man's problem in the present often tempts us to point a finger at God. God, this is your fault. You weren't there when I needed you. You abandoned me. Lord, if you would have only, right? It sounds like what Mary and Martha said to Jesus because of his delay in coming to Lazarus' side. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what's taking place here. This was Hezekiah's crisis. I've copied a a brief uh, passage here from Bible commentator John Phillips, he says the British Museum in London contains Sennacherib's cylinder in which he boasts of his campaign. Hexagonal in shape, it contains 487 closely written lines of cuneiform text. It records eight of Sennacherib's expeditions among them, his invasion of Judah and his siege of Jerusalem. He boasts that he captured 46 of Hezekiah's fenced cities and captured 200,150 people, Hezekiah was rightly concerned. Folks, a crisis to be sure. Verse 13, you make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the, the people. My dishonor is continually before me. The shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. Folks, has there ever been a time in your your crisis where you felt ashamed or embarrassed because of your circumstance? I assure you that no one felt worse than God's people in the southern kingdom of Judah during the days of Hezekiah. All the nations around them mocked them as the people of God and they suffered at the hands of their enemies and there was military disaster. But folks, there was something more painful than this embarrassment or this shame or this military disaster and that's letter B. There was a moral dilemma or dilemmas, plural perhaps, moral dilemma, letter B. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Here is the dilemma. In all of the disaster that had befallen Judah, I'm sorry, if all of the disaster that had befallen Judah had occurred under the reign of Hezekiah's wicked father Ahaz, 
It would have been understandable as either the natural consequence or the divine consequence for Judah's sin. Wicked King Ahaz and all that took place there. However, all of the calamity here now is occurring in the days of Hezekiah. The good king who's doing the right thing, who's restoring the right worship of Yahweh in Judah. You see, Hezekiah obeyed the voice of Isaiah while his father Ahaz did not. And Hezekiah obeyed the voice of the prophet of God and there was revival in the land and yet the enemy was still prevailing. That is a moral dilemma in our crisis because we ask, Lord, I've committed myself to following you. I've committed myself to obeying you, but everything is going wrong around me. Lord, I've, I've committed to giving you the first fruits of my increase, but I don't have enough to pay the bills. Lord, I've committed to raise my children and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and yet they've played the prodigal. Lord, I've tried to be salt and light in the public square, and yet our country is going down the drain. And there's a dilemma in our thinking, and there's a, a tension that we feel. Ima- imagine Hezekiah arguing with the Lord, as is even illustrated here in these verses. Lord, I have brought reforms to Judah. I have corrected the problems of my father Ahaz. I'm doing what's right, and yet we're in crisis. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, Would not God search this out for he knows the secrets of the the heart? Meaning, would God not know this? How can God not know this? He knows we're doing the right things. He knows that we're not guilty of the things named in verse number 20. And yet in verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Folks, this is a real moral dilemma in our present problems. We're doing what's right and we're still suffering calamity. We are obeying the Lord, we're following the Lord, yet we're experiencing threats at every hand. What are we supposed to do as the people of God when we live at a time and in a place when we are being overrun by corruption and wickedness, when we are watching collapse of society and civilization, and the moral fibers of of our entire nation are disintegrating, what are we supposed to do in our own personal lives? We've walked in integrity, but we've been stabbed in the back, or the rug's been pulled out from under us, or we are left out in the cold. What do we do? Verse 23, awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help, redeem us for your mercy's sake. Number three, our prayer for the future. God's providence in the past, verses one through eight. 
Man's problems in the present, verses nine through 22, both the military disaster and the moral dilemma, but number three, our prayer for the the future. And this is a desperate prayer to the Lord. Now, I suspect that most often, this is my natural default. When in crisis, I complain about my crisis. And then I worry about my crisis. And then I work really hard to fix my crisis because I can do that. In it all, I fear that all is lost in my crisis. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel hopeless? You say, Pastor Matt, you have no idea how hopeless and helpless I feel in my, my crisis. It seems like things are beyond the point of no return. How often do you pray with the passion of this psalm in your crisis. Folks, we love to talk about everything that's going wrong in our country today. We love to talk about it. We love to blame our president for it or our previous president for it or another country's president for it, right? But do we pray? Everything is going wrong in our lives and while we're happy to talk about our country's problems crisis, we don't want to talk about our own crisis. We blame our spouse or we blame ourselves, but do we pray? In conclusion, I want to leave you with what the prophet Isaiah said to the people of Judah in the days of King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. If you were to read Isaiah chapter one, verse number one, the Bible tells us that Isaiah was king, I'm sorry, Isaiah was a prophet in Judah during the reigns of King Ahaz and his son, King Hezekiah. And this is what Isaiah 50, verse number 10 says. Isaiah 50, verse number 10. Who among you fears the Lord? Anybody here this evening? Who among you fears the Lord? We would all raise our hand. Who obeys the voice of his servant? Anybody here this evening? Obey the voice of the servant of the Lord? We would, we would raise our hand to that. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? That described those living in the difficult days of, of Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah. We might say that we too live in dark days. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Isaiah 50, verse number 10. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? That's us. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Folks, We feel like we are in perpetual crisis mode as individuals, certainly as we watch the news and read the headlines. What do we do? We pray and trust and rely on the Lord. Let's pray. God in heaven, we plead for you to awake, to arise, to intervene. God, do not hide your face from us in our need. We are needy people. We are broken people. 
or there is threat at every hand, our enemies are prevailing in every way. And Lord, like the psalmist described, we, we feel that we're dry and we're bent down. And so we plead for your aid. We ask that you would redeem us, not for our sake, but for your mercy's sake. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.